I want to look at supremacy and preeminence of Christ and the fact that God was working out an eternal purpose through Christ and we'll be looking at uh, Colossians and particularly Colossians chapter 1 and this is one of those kind of purple passages in the Bible and I felt that this passage alone, just sitting and meditating upon it, should inspire our hearts to praise God. And therefore it seemed to me that it would be good for us to do the worship after we've um, considered this passage. So that's of course if I haven't put you to sleep by the time you get there. So if you'd like to turn up... Um, Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 1, and we'll read that. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. As it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras. And Epaphras was someone who um, came to the Lord under Paul's ministry uh, from Ephesus. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And this verse 15 to verse 22-23 is the thing we'll focus on today. He, that is, the Son of God, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, 
the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. And I say, I want us to just focus on that that passage from verse 15 to um, really about halfway through um, verse 22. Because, as I say, this is one of those purple passages of the Bible. It's actually a parallel to the Hebrews verses, 1 to 4, that have been the subject of the fighter verses um, for the previous two weeks. So if you've learnt those, you've already got a summary in those of what it is that I'm going to talk about. But first, as we look into that passage, what we see is that the Son of God, that is, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God and is the firstborn of all creation. Just think of that. God is invisible, apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the Son of God. And when we see God appearing in the Old Testament, it's... The, the personification, if you like, of the Lord Jesus Christ in the thing that gets called a theophany. But he is the image of the invisible God. Without him, we cannot see and know God. And there's two things about that word for image. It conveys the idea of likeness. It means that... Jesus Christ is like God. And in Hebrews, in the passages we've learnt these uh, last couple of weeks, in verse chapter 1, verse 2, it says he is the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus Christ is the exact imprint. He's not a replica. He's a complete and full version of God in a different form. And he has the whole of God's nature dwelling in him. And that word in Hebrews about imprint, if you remember I mentioned last week, is about the stamp of a die, making a mark. And it's what happens with coins. You know, when a coin is made, the blanks are cut out, the discs are cut out, and then a die stamps the image on them. And in as much as the artist has been able to capture the likeness of Queen Elizabeth, the coins that are stamped today bear her likeness. And it's an exact replica of the likeness that was created. An exact image. 
So more than just being that exact likeness of God, he is the manifestation of God. He makes God real and tangible to us. And you just think about that. Here was Jesus Christ, a man, who was the exact likeness of God. Now, albeit being a man in a physical world, he was constrained. But before that, as the Son of God, he was the exact, complete likeness. And as much of that as was reasonable, possible, or appropriate for his mission here on the world, in the world, that was constrained and contained first in a little baby. Imagine that. We've got Joseph there. Imagine that. All of God compressed into a baby the size of Joseph. And then he grew up with all the constraints that there are upon the flesh, albeit from time to time he was able to overcome those. So here he is, the image of the God who is otherwise invisible. He then goes on to say he is the firstborn of all creation. Ooh, so that starts a puzzle. The firstborn of all creation. That phrase seems to imply he was the first thing created, but that isn't what it means. And the next verse amplifies that. What it does mean, well, he couldn't be that, you see, because he is the creator. So he can't be the first of creation. And the thing about the firstborn, certainly in the Jewish family, the Hebrew family, was that the firstborn son had a special position. He was given management, as it were, of the household. Once he grew, I guess, to the appropriate age, the father would hand over to him the management of all the affairs. And that's exactly what we see with Christ. The father has given to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, management of all the affairs, all of creation. And that's what it means by firstborn. The firstborn also had a a privileged position in that uh, when the father died, he received a double blessing and he then became the head of the family. So here we're kind of talking about um, this special superior position that Christ had over creation, managing on the father's behalf the whole of the household. And to that extent, he was also, therefore, superior to creation because he created it. And he was before creation because he created it. And in the next verse, we read, for by him all things were created. So that's underlining this fact that this first firstborn is not about being firstborn in time, but this special uh, position. This next verse says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So this is the statement. He is the creator. It was by his power that the whole universe was created. And... 
The word there that's translated universe, again, it was the same in Hebrew, in that Hebrews passage I mentioned last week, means the totality. Everything. Absolutely everything. Totality. There is nothing that is not included within totality. He created the lot. Absolutely everything that was created, he created it. And Paul goes on to, to emphasize this in, in three ways. He says he created everything on earth and everything in the heavens. So that's everything that you and I can actually get at. He created. And he created all that stuff that we can see around the world that we can't get at. And we can get at, we can get at a few bits of it now if we happen to have a rocket or a space shuttle or something. Or we can send a satellite out to a comet and bring a bit back. Even that is not even scratching the surface of the immensity of everything that he created. So he created everything that we can put our hands on and everything we can't put our hands on but we can see. He then goes on to say that he created everything that was visible and invisible. So all the things we see he created as well as everything that we can't see. And that again means is is another description, an extent of totality of the whole universe. And he then goes on to say, he created all of the authorities, all of the power structures, as it were, within the universe, within the created universe. And here, Paul speaks of thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And it would seem that the Colossians were being trapped by error. Somebody had come in with error. And whilst it's not totally clear what this error was, it seems that it involved the suggestion that there was a hierarchy of angels between man and God. And Jesus was just somewhere in there. And what Paul is actually saying here, in the face of that problem the Colossians were were facing, in the face of that error, no, no. If... If there is such a hierarchy of authority in the spiritual realm, Jesus created it and he is over it. He is supreme over it. But we can also extend that to all the authorities in the world. He created them all. He is over all of the authorities, whether they're in the spiritual realm or in this worldly material realm. So he has immense power. And in that verse, we see that things were created by him, things were created through him, and things were created for him. So created by him, it was his power that did it. But it was not his idea. It wasn't his will, his plan, the thing he wanted to do, and never mind the rest of the Godhead. No. It was done through him on behalf of the Father. He acted on behalf of the Father in making the creation. Creation was the Father's will. But it was created for him. And what on earth could that mean? Well, if we make something, if we make a a present, you know, back in the Blue Peter days, we might have made something out of sticky back plastic for somebody or uh, fairy liquid washing up bottles and decorating them, and we made them for somebody, we made it for them and we would give it to them. And so the creation, in that sense, was made for Jesus for the Son of God, to bring glory to him. And because it was made for him, and indeed, again, we read in Hebrews, in those fighter verses, that 
He, the son, was appointed heir of all things, all things again. He was heir, he is heir, he, he is the one who inherits, has inherited the whole of the universe. And so all things owe allegiance to him as king of kings. All those authorities, supposedly, you know, real or supposed, owe their allegiance to him. He is powerful and has the authority over everything. And we then go on and read in verse 17 that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. But we've already thought about the before all things. But this thing about all things hold together. What it means is that he sustains the universe. The universe was created, but as it were, it needs to be kept going. And that word for hold... Um, has the sense of things being placed side by side and being kept there. And that's what Jesus does for the universe. As the Son of God, he maintains the universe working. And again, in that passage in Hebrews, uh, we read that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Just imagine that fantastic phrase, that, the word of his power. He has the power to create, the power to sustain, and again, it's done by command. It's done by his word. Now, I can try and issue a command. You know, I'd like something to be created there. Uh, A flower pot. I can command it, but I have no power to do it. God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, has the power to do it, and when he commands it, it is done. And so he keeps the whole world going. And that's emphasised in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 12, if you want to turn to it. I'll read it out. Don't rush to it if if that's a hassle. And what we see there is an illustration of what will happen when God, when the Lord Jesus, when the Son of God stops sustaining the universe. It will only happen at the end time when he wraps everything up in preparation for the, new, the creation of the new world and the new heaven. And we read, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and beheld there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full, moon, the full moon became like blood, and the stars fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. That's a description of the Son of God's sustaining power being released. And the universe is rolled up like a scroll in preparation for what is to come, the better thing that is to come. Then we go on in verse 18 and we read that he is the head of the body, the church. We've just been thinking about the supremacy of Christ and the fact that he is supreme over the physical universe and the spiritual universe. All that that has been created. Now we read that he is supreme over the church. He is the head of the body. That passage, along with all sorts of other passages 
that talk about Christ being the head and the, the church and the people and us being the body of Christ. He is the head of us, the church. The church is the assembly of all believers. And God the Father has appointed him to be head over it. And that means that he has simply power and authority over the church to direct its path. So he is the head, not man. It doesn't matter about what man does. What we have to do is focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and follow his direction. And just think, what's a body without a head? It's dead. Useless. If we don't accept and allow the Lord Jesus Christ to be our head as the church, then we as a body will be useless. We go on and read in um, verse 18 that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have preeminence. So he is the beginning, he's another beginning. He's a beginning of this new creation, the creation in which we have been reconciled, as we will see in a moment, reconciled to God. And the Lord Jesus inaugurated it. He started it. Not simply when he died upon the cross, but when he rose again. He was the firstborn from the dead. He gave his body as a sacrifice for our sins because we can do nothing. We are without the forgiveness of God, without that reconciliation, we should have been pinned to that cross. And we are still guilty for the sins. The sin of our sinful heart, our fallen heart, our heart that we will see that is naturally hostile towards God. And that means choose to go our own way. Had he not sacrificed himself upon the cross, that would not have been dealt with. He paid the price. But the kingdom was not inaugurated until he rose again. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. When he rose again, he modelled the way for us. He showed us that there was a new way. That it didn't just end on the cross. It just doesn't end in death. There is new life. There is something more to come. And he modelled that by rising from the grave. Firstborn from the dead. And adopting that new resurrection body. Which is a model of the body that we will receive at the end time. And so, as Paul said earlier on, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son. It's as it were, when he came, it's as if he dropped down into Satan's front room and took all of Satan's possessions away. He brought the kingdom of God into this domain of darkness which for the time being is under the jurisdiction of Satan. But not forever. And that grip he has has already been broken. And then we read that in 19 and 20, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So God was pleased to do this. God was delighted to live through the Son in this world. But more than that, He was pleased to reconcile to himself all things through Jesus. It says, and through him to to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So Christ came to reconcile. 
What does it mean to reconcile? Well, first of all, you have to be unreconciled. You have to be separated from somebody. And when the fall happened, when Eve was deceived and Adam was just plain, ordinary, disobedient, man became rebellious and our relationship with God was broken. That's why God no longer walked with them in the garden after he found them that first time. The friendship, as it were, was broken. And man, as we'll see in the next verse, became an enemy of God. So we're opposed. We are absolutely opposed. And so a reconciliation is a reuniting of opposed parties, bringing them together. And it's about completely restoring the relationship such that there is, there's nothing left hanging over that relationship. It's all gone. It's all set aside. And that relationship is as good as new. And that is what Christ did. Through his death, he reconciled all things to God. That's what happened on the cross. So just to imagine this. We've got this immense, all-powerful God who is creating the world who is maintaining the world, who made this totality of absolutely everything, who has been put in this position of authority by God the Father. And here we're talking about God the Son. He has all of this, and he gave all of that up for you and for me to be pinned upon that cross. And he reconciled ourselves. He reconciled us with God. That we might be made whole. And why did he need to do that? Well, Paul tells us. You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We were alienated, separated from God because of what we call the fall, because of that first sin. It is our very attitude, our very character to be hostile in mind towards God. And we know a lot about hostility in this day and age. We see it on the news, Syria, Iran, Egypt, Ukraine. It's there. You see this head to head, nothing to do with, absolute Hatred. And that's the state of natural man. And that's why we see all this stuff working out in bad laws that are coming into this nation and throughout the world. It's because man wants to go his own way, never mind God. That's what all this evolution stuff is about. We're trying to argue our way out of God existing so we don't have to put up with him because we've got no time for him. And that's the natural condition of man. And because of that, evil deeds flow. We might not think some of these deeds are evil, but it doesn't matter what we think, it matters what God thinks. And he looks and sees. And if they are not things in line with his will, bringing glory to him and to the Son, then they are evil deeds. They are evil deeds. So, why did Jesus sacrifice himself for us? 
In verse 22, Paul tells us, it was in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. Holy means to be separated, to set apart for God. And with that, there is an implication of of living in the style of God, as it were, living in a godly life. That word for blameless actually means without blemish. And you just think back to the Old Testament sacrifices. The animals that were sacrificed, that were set aside, had to be without blemish. They had to be perfect to be acceptable to God. So what Paul is telling us here is, one of the reasons that Jesus, this, not just the man Jesus, but this God, the Son of Man, with all of that immense power and position, he did it. He died upon the cross that we might be presented to God without blemish. That we would be seen by God to be perfect. And he did it so that we would be above reproach before God. And that just doesn't mean, above reproach doesn't simply mean that somebody's accused me of something and I've been found not guilty, which is effectively what has happened for us. Because our sins, the just deserts for our sins, were taken by Jesus upon the cross, yes? And therefore, we are no longer guilty because somehow or other, in that transaction, he became us on the cross. And so our sins were dealt with. And therefore, our sins don't weigh upon us anymore. But you can look at that, and it often is, as acquittal. God has seen us and said, no charge, it's been dealt with. But this above reproach is more than that, that there is now no longer an accusation against us because we are without blemish. There is no charge that can be laid against us before God because of what Jesus did upon the cross to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And what was this all about? Well, in Ephesians and chapter 3, we read that God did this to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realised in Christ Jesus our Lord. This was God's plan from the beginning, actually from before the world, the universe was created. It's his eternal purpose. We might be made fit to be in his company. And then we read in Philippians about Jesus. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, all of that massive stuff that we talked about, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held on to, but emptied himself. He gave it all up by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted 
has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why he did it for us. And that his eternal purpose that included us might be fulfilled.